So as we recite the, the sutra, think that as you're reciting the sutra, that uh, remedy that will help you get rid of all your problems, that's what you're going after. elixir that's going to help you achieve everything, everything that you've always wanted to achieve, help you achieve complete fulfillment. It's in these words to ask your mind to please cooperate. Okay. You don't want to miss it when it, when it comes up. For those of you who are naturally, who have natural devotion, bring that energy up also. I prostrate to the mother of the conquerors of the three times. That perfection is wisdom indescribable by words of thoughts, which does not arise and does not cease in nature and space. Whose object belongs to the individual subjects In the language of Tibet, Papa Chandendema Sheraki Paro to Kimba Ningbo. I pay respect to all Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Thus did I hear at one time the Buddha was residing in the Raja Kriha at Vulture together with a great assembly of monks and a great assembly of Bodhisattvas. At that time, from among the variety of possible meditation objects, the Bhagavan was abiding, absorbed in the Samadhi called profound radiance. Also at that time, the Bodhisattva, the great Bodhisattva, the exalted Avalokiteshwara, was investigating the practice of the profound, perceiving that even those five heaps are empty of inherent nature. Then, How should any son of the lineage trained who wishes to engage in the practice of profound perfection of wisdom? The Bodhisattva, the great Bodhisattva, the exalted Pavarakiteshwara, then declared the Venerable Shariputra, O Shariputra, any son or daughter of the lineage who wishes to engage in the practice of the profound perfection of wisdom should you all things 
is no harm. There, there is no fear. There is no discrimination. There is no compositional factors. There is no consciousness. No eye. No ear. No nose. No tongue. No body. No mind. No visible form. No sound. No scent. No taste. No tangible object. No object of mind consciousness. There is also no eye constituent. No mind constituent.
สมารยัคะอากาสมารสัชตารสมารยัคะอากาสมารสัชตารสมารยัคะอากาสมารสัชตารสมารยัคะอากาสมารสัชตารสมารยัคะPlease protect your mind from wondering. 
protect your prejudices from coming and misinterpreting what's what's going on. And ask whatever it is in your mind, whatever habits may obstruct you, whatever obstructions may come and disturb you, at least for this moment, stay away. Whatever reason brought you here, whatever it is, whatever that is going on in your life that is of concern to you, that you wish to address in an ultimate way. setting, the history of the Hat Sutra, and we didn't go too much into the, uh, I guess, the kind of history that you would expect, but to put yourself into the context of this Hat Sutra, to see that it is relevant to, to you, to see that it is relevant to whatever concerns you have right now, 
know that the Hot Sutra was spoken specifically to address that concern. And to have your concern be honest, be realistic about your, what your concerns are. And don't, don't worry about whether or not you have uh, this ideal motivation that the texts are asking you to, to have. You, you can work towards it. Okay? But if you can be realistic, be, know where you are and know exactly what your concerns are and know that this is what you are after, this is what you're trying to address, then let it come up. Okay? And know that this is addressing it. And I ask you to uh, think about uh, what is the goal of the sutra in a sense of defining what is Buddhahood. And we didn't go too much into the classic, the three bodies, the four bodies, the two bodies, but more in a sense of whatever it is that you have a true aspiration for, whatever it is that you believe that this object of aspiration, whatever it will, what it will give you, that true sense of satisfaction that it will give you, that's the sense you're looking for. That's what Buddhahood is about. Okay. Uh, for now, Buddhahood may be the sense of satisfaction you get when you have a nice moose, chocolate moose. Okay. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Eventually, the chocolate mousse will transform and become something else. But the sense of satisfaction that you're hoping to get from that chocolate mousse is the same sense of satisfaction you want Buddhahood to give you. Okay. Don't worry about you know, the, the, how the, the Buddhas are depicted, the 82 minor marks, the so-called so major marks and minor marks with the long ears, flat foot. You know, these things may not be in style when you finally achieve Buddhahood and you don't want to get stuck with that. Okay? And you're not going to get stuck with it. Okay? Right now we are going to go into the text. We go into, actually, I, I told you that the, the, the verse of homage that is found in the Hatsutra is found uh, only in the Tibetan version. That, that, that was not to mean that the Tibetans uh, uh, made up the verse. This verse actually was spoken by the Buddha himself. Uh, in the, when you're studying the larger perfection of wisdom, there's a part where you reach when the Buddha himself is describing what is the perfection of wisdom. And, 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 and when the, there's, a, there's a point in describing the, the perfection of wisdom, the Buddha is, is trying to uh, engender a sense of reverence about the perfection of wisdom. And the Buddha asks the question, to whom should the Buddhas prostrate? And you think, well, I thought Buddhas were the last thing. Who, who could be above the Buddhas for the Buddhas to prostrate to? Okay. So, and the Buddha says, uh, this perfection of wisdom is worthy, is worthy of an object for the Buddhas to prostrate to. So, when it says, I prostrate to the mother of the conquerors, it's not just you who are recognizing, the, uh, are recognizing the, the supreme uh, importance of the perfection of wisdom. This is the Buddhas themselves recognizing the supreme importance of the perfection of wisdom. That the Buddhas are said to be the ultimate object worthy of prostration, worthy of honor, worthy of uh, 
of uh, honor, worthy of what is that thing? A object of uh, the highest object to get merit to 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 accumulate merit. Okay, and yet the Buddha says, no, there is some there, there is something that even the Buddhas prostrate to, and that's the perfection of wisdom. So to put it in a cute way, the Buddhas prostrate to their mothers. <laughs> So that's what the verse came from. The verse actually came from the, it's from the larger perfection of wisdom that the Tibetans took it and put it there. Okay. The Tibetans didn't actually invent or uh, made up th th this verse. Okay. Uh, okay. I pay respect to all Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. This actually is not, the, this, this actually the Tibetans put that there. It was a way for the Tibetans to sort of distinguish the, uh, sort of give a reader what kind of reading you're what kind of reading you're going to you're going to do. Okay, what's coming up? What under what subject? What you're about to read falls under 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 wisdom, under Abhidhamma, or under uh, Vinaya. So if it says I I pay respect to all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, and it's about wisdom. Okay. Thus did I hear did I hear at one time. Now who's this person who's saying thus did I hear at one time? Uh, supposedly, uh, I don't know exactly. Maybe five. They say five hundred years. Five hundred years. That's a round, nice round number. After the Buddha passed away, the disciples of the Buddha gathered together and they recited what the Buddha, uh, what, what what they heard from the Buddha, and three uh, distinguishing dis distinguished disciples were chosen to do the recitation. One will recite. Uh, uh, the Abhidhamma, one will recite the Vinaya, and the other one will recite what are called the Sutras. Okay, so the Sutras were recited mainly by Ananda. So this person who's saying "Thus did I hear" is actually Ananda. Okay, so so there are three personalities in the Sutra. There's the Buddha, there's Avalokiteshvara. Well, there's more than three actually. There's four. <laughs> there's this person who's not really who's just uh, uh, an observer, who's Ananda. There's Shariputra. There's uh, Avalokiteshvara, and then there's the Buddha. These are the three main personalities, the three main characters in the scene. And the one who says, "I thus did I hear at one time," that's Ananda. Uh, at, at the moment of uh, when 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 the disciples of the Buddha were uh, sort of doing the re this recitation, it was a beautiful scene. They say that. Uh, the only thing that a monk owns, that, that the monk can claim ownership to, are his robes. And you're supposed to respect the robe as though uh, uh, it is the Buddha, the, uh, it is the Dharma, it is the Buddha, it is the three jewels themselves. Uh, the only thing, uh, there's one part of the robe, it's not really part of the robe, but there's a, like a mat you put on, uh, you, uh, the monk is supposed to sit on. So it's as a way to respect the robe. So you don't just sit on bare ground, on dirty ground. So it's to put a, a, a blanket, or a, a, a little square thing. You're supposed to sit on it as a way of showing respect for, for the robes. And there are these, uh, and the only, uh, the only, uh, you could say, outer sign that shows some sort of uh, um, hierarchy among among the ordained 
is the one, there's a, a robe that only those who are fully ordained are supposed to wear. And within the Tibetan system, you, you don't, it, it has become uh, something you wear only in, in big ceremonies. If you have attended the Dalai Lama's teachings, uh, you may have seen all of a sudden the monks in the front already, all of a sudden they're wearing this yellow thing on top. And when the teaching is over, it's gone. Okay, so they wear that mostly now in ceremonies, in, in, in big teachings and also in specific uh, monastic ceremonies. Okay, uh, the Theravadan monks, they wear it uh, whenever it's cold. <laughs> they are very practical. <laughs> okay, uh, so at this uh, gathering of, of, uh, of the disciples of the Buddha, who were sort of compiling what the teachings of the Buddha uh, to show respect to the Dharma. Everybody took off their robes, the very top one, and they made a throne out of it. So they made like a heap of cloth made up of their robes for the person who's about to recite the Dharma to sit on. Because that person is about to recite something holy and it shouldn't be sitting on the same level as everybody else. And this is to show respect, not to the person, was about to recite it, but to the Dharma that is about to be expounded. Okay. So that was the that was the, the setting. But only in the sutras do you hear this expression thus that I hear at one time. Maybe it was Ananda style. Uh, when you when if you go into the Abhidhamma, you're not, it's not gonna say thus did I hear at one time. When you read the, the Vinaya it doesn't say thus did I hear at one time. Okay. <coughs> I mean there are some sutras but still sutras in the Vinaya, never mind. <laughs> so, and Rinpoche says that this one time is not just, uh, oh, this is what I heard once, but to show the, to show the, uh, the rare, how rare the, the Hat Sutra, the teaching of the Hat Sutra is supposed to be. When you read, the, when you read a lot of the sutras and they're describing the, the, the background, the scenery, and the, you could say, the context for which the sutra was spoken, then you, you sort of hear that because of this, because of that, and sometimes you hear the Buddha sort of like, uh, not because someone specifically asked for something, but something happens within the community. Someone does something, someone says something, and then that becomes like a trigger for the Buddha to say, oh, this means this is the time for this particular teaching. And the Buddha would start, uh, would start giving this teaching. Okay. So something happened, and the Buddha said, now it's time to give the teaching on the essence of, of, of the teaching of, of, of the perfection of wisdom. And that's what this one time meant. This at one time, and only once did the Buddha teach this. The Buddha never teach one sutra more than once. Of course, you hear repetitions, you hear themes be repeated, but a sutra is never repeated. Okay. So the Buddha just didn't have a, like a script, and then he went around different towns, and so where's my hot sutra script? <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. So the Buddha was residing at Rajagriha in Vulture Peak, together with a great assembly of monks and a great assembly of bodhisattvas. Now the word great assembly doesn't only mean that there was a bunch of monks. It is to referring to the caliber of monks, the caliber of, of the ordained that were, that were there. The word great means that a lot of them had already achieved arhathood. Okay? Okay, they've already achieved arhathood. I mean, 
the longer in samsara they, they, they've reached the path of no more learning so why would the buddha want to teach them anything what what else is there for them to learn okay and then there was a great assembly of bodhisattvas also the word great also means that it wasn't just any bodhisattvas it was bodhisattvas of great caliber who have who have reached high levels of realization the next verse at that time from among the variety of possible meditation objects the Bhagavan was abiding absorbed in the Samadhi called profound radiance uh, this is one particular one specific interpretation translation of, of the verse uh, one says uh, sort of tells you specifically that the Buddha was absorbed in a particular kind of a meditation and that meditation had a name okay and that meditation is called profound radiance and what is this meditation that is called profound radiance it's when a buddha enters the meditation and sort of like the buddha is looking at everything at the same time and not only is he looking at everything at the same time, but he's looking at the ultimate nature at the same time. Okay? And when the Buddha enters this meditation, the reason that it is called profound radiance is because the Buddha starts to shine. There's a visible radiance coming from the Buddha. Uh, I don't know how many of you have actually uh, met the, the present Kamrapa. I swear, the first time I saw him, he was glowing. I'm not talking about he was glowing like he was happy glowing. I mean, you know, like a light bulb was inside him. And uh, uh, like this. <laughs> it was actually, I mean, you, you could take a, a, what that thing that the photographers have that checks the light. A light, you can actually take a light meter and, and, and measure the light radiating from him. Okay. That's how he was actually radiating. So that gives me some sort of a, an idea. As, yeah, I guess people can actually glow like that. Okay. <laughs> so when the Buddha is, is in this uh, meditation, he glows. He radiates. Okay. And the word profound next to it is that because he was medi he was, uh, this radiance came from because he was uh, focusing one-pointedly on the profound. That is, on the ultimate nature of, of everything. Not just on the ultimate nature of one thing, but he was all on... Uh, absorbed in meditation that was focused on the ultimate nature of each and every single object that exists and remember that on each and every single object that exists okay keep that in mind all right a bhagavan is a, a another word for the buddha it means uh they translate as the lord okay Also at that time, the Bodhisattva, the great Bodhisattva, the exalted Avalokiteshwara. That's a lot of words, huh? <laughs> the Bodhisattva. Not just the Bodhisattva, but the great Bodhisattva. Not just the Bodhisattva, the great Bodhisattva, but the exalted Bodhisattva, great Bodhisattva, Avalokiteshwara. Okay? Who was investigating the profound, the practice of the profound, perceiving that even those five heaps are empty of inherent nature of, in, of inherent nature we may get stuck here for a little while 
because there's a lot in that just that paragraph okay so, so here's the Buddha he enters into, into this meditation and then at the same time I guess I would, you could say, I would just say, oh, I guess the Buddha is meditating, look, it's time for, for us to meditate. And the Buddha, and Avrakteshwara entered meditation also. Okay. And it says, he's a Bodhisattva. That means, what does that mean? That means he has achieved uh, what is called uh, uh, effortless bodhicitta. So as soon as you achieve effortless bodhicitta, you are now called a Bodhisattva. Not only was he just any kind of bodhisattva, he was a great bodhisattva. And again, the word great also means his status. Great bodhisattva, uh, the bodhisattvas who have achieved uh, um, the eighth bhumi, there are ten bhumis for bodhisattvas before they become an, a fully enlightened Buddha. So the bodhisattva who has, who, who's up to the eighth bhumi and up are called great bodhisattvas. Okay? But Avarukiteshwara is not just is not is not only on the eighth bumi. He was uh, on the he's on the well at that. Uh, what should we say? It's kind of well. He was manifesting, <laughs> appearing as <laughs> as a bodhisattva on the tenth bumi. Okay. And the word exalted is a translation of Arya. Okay. And Arya means uh, a bodhisattva who has reached. The first Bhumi. That's where I see him directly for the first time. So the Arya, the exalted should have been in, a, in the beginning. Okay. Okay. So he was investigating the practice of the profound. That is, he was meditating on emptiness. He was em- meditating on the cure for every person's problem. He was, me- he was mixing the elixir that will give complete satisfaction. And there's a curious uh, turn of, there's a curious phrase that comes up, curious term, perceiving that even, that even those five heaps are empty of inherent nature. So that takes into consideration that there was something else whose, whose, whose nature was seen as empty. And in addition to that, saw that also the five heaps are also empty of inherent nature. So what was that other thing that he saw that was empty of, of, of inherent nature? That was the personality. Uh, uh, scholastically described as emptiness of person and emptiness of, of uh, phenomena. Okay. So first, he already had an understanding that the person, the personality is empty of inherent nature. We'll get into exactly, well not exactly, but as, as much as good as we can, what does it mean that some, for something to be empty of inherent nature? So he saw that the personality is empty of inherent nature. And in addition to, to that, he also, he, saw that f- he also saw the emptiness of phenomena. And first, the first phenomena that you, uh, when you are on the path, seeking uh, to understand the ultimate nature of things. First you, see the, um, first you see the emptiness of yourself, then you see the emptiness of phenomena. And the f- emptiness of phenomena is not necessarily the emptiness of things that are around you. All you have to do is focus now on the heaps, that, of, of the heaps. Okay? That's the emptiness of phenomena. 
And this is five heaps, but you could also say two heaps. And if you can even further uh, divide it into even further heaps. But there's a reason why the Buddha chose to divide, so chose to categorize a person into five parts. So these are the five parts that makes up a person. Okay. The first part is the body, the form. And what's the other part? What's the other four parts? The other four parts is mainly the mind. So a person is really mainly divided into two parts, a body and a mind. Okay. And the Buddha took the body and give it, made it into its own heap, its own category. And then he took the mind and split it into four categories, four separate other categories. And the four separate other categories are, come on, feeling, discrimination, composition of factors, and consciousness. Okay. So these are the other four parts. And all these four parts are mind, are mental. Feeling is mental. Discrimination is mental. Composition of factors is, well, not quite mental. It includes mental and and, and consciousness is definitely mental. And the reason that the Buddha pointed, extracted those parts out out of all the other parts that he could have uh, pointed out to is because these are the parts that gets us into trouble. Because of feelings we have, we discriminate. Because of how we discriminate, we tend to have uh, tendencies. That's part of the, uh, of the composition of factors. And because of that, it creates a kind of a consciousness. It creates a kinds of view we have about the world. Okay, so you can say it's, they're all connected to each other, strengthening each other. So because of the view that we have, we have a particular reaction to the kinds of different kinds of feelings that we have. Because of the feelings that we have, it sort of reinforces the kind of view that we have and the kinds of tendencies that we have. Okay, and of course. Uh, what we uh, tend to uh, focus our mind on, okay? And the discrimination has to do with, uh, well, this is something that brings about this kind of feeling, this is something that brings about that kind of feeling, this is something that brings about the other kind of feeling. So that's a discrimination. This is this, this is that, this is this, this is that. Okay, so that's the reason why the Buddha decided to break up the person into five parts. And that, that so, with this, so take the five parts really as a, as, a, as a guide, okay? So these are the five parts, so the main actors, so to speak, that define, that uh, determine what kind of existence you have. Because these are the parts of you that play a very big, important role, okay? So you can also find out other parts in you that play an important role in deciding your existence. So you don't have to, you don't, you don't have to necessarily uh, only work with these fives. But if you work with these five, not only are you working with whatever parts of you, of you that is not included in here, like the ability to analyze, uh, intelligence, these kinds of things, the ability to have a uh, uh, aspiration, all these things are in there, okay? And if, any, if there is one of them in particular that sort of strikes you, that sort of uh, 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 really draws your attention, then you can just put that in there. Okay? So you don't have to worry about, oh, you're, you're destroying lineages or anything like that. Okay? 
we get to that too about lineage <laughs> okay now the big thing empty of inherent nature that's the profound that's the medicine that's the elixir Now, what does it really mean? And how are you supposed to get to that understanding? Okay. Let's read one more paragraph before we go into that. Then, by the power of the Buddha, the Venerable Shariputra inquired of the Bodhisattva the great Bodhisattva, the exalted Avalokiteshvara. How should any son of the lineage train who wishes to engage in the practice of the profound perfection of wisdom? And again, remember who are gathered there. These aren't just beginners. Okay, These are mostly, uh, a lot of the, uh, the ordained there, a lot of the, the people uh, who are there, disciples of the Buddha, are already which are hardwood, okay? And a lot of them are great bodhisattvas. So here is uh, Shariputra, who's already achieved arhathood, asking what seems to be a very basic question, okay? How should any son of the lineage, remember Shariputra is like the, uh, the uh, exemplar of an arhat, somebody who has achieved personal liberation, personal nirvana. And he says, he's inquiring this by the power of the Buddha. Okay. So the Buddha wants some member of the audience to have some sort of change of mind, some sort of change of heart. Okay. So the Buddha instigates a conversation between a Venerable Shariputra and Bodhisattva, the great Bodhisattva, the, Ari, the exalted Avalokiteshvara. And he asked him a very simple question. How should any son of the lineage train who wishes to engage in a practice of the profound perfection of wisdom? Now, in order for you to achieve arhathood, what is it that you need to have mastered already? <laughs> yeah, you must have seen emptiness directly, not only once, you must have trained, you must have gone back to that experience over and over and over again until you have removed all your uh, obstacles and then eventually having mastered seeing emptiness directly, you achieve liberation. And here is an ahat asking how should someone train in wisdom. You already, he has already done it. He's an ahat. But he says perfection of wisdom. How should a, and then he said, how should a son of the lineage train if, you, if, if such a son wishes to engage in the practice of the profound perfection of wisdom? So the perfection of wisdom refers to specifically 
So wisdom by itself is shared by those who wish to achieve, who are practicing to achieve personal liberation, and also who are practicing to achieve Buddhahood. And those are two distinct uh, uh, goals, according to Mahayana. Okay. According to uh, some other schools, they're both the same in terms of the experience. They do make a distinction that, yes, the Buddha is vastly superior to uh, someone who has reached personal liberation, but as far as the experience is concerned, the experience of our hardwood is the same. Okay. So, uh, but this is Mahayana. Okay. So according to Mahayana, well, that's what that son of the lineage means. So how, how does a son, how does a person who has entered the Mahayana path, how should that person train in wisdom? When a, a bodhisattva is training in wisdom, the wisdom becomes the perfection of wisdom. So when someone is uh, engaged in wisdom, someone is uh, practicing a deep understanding of wisdom, and when that, when that person's mind is a mind that is imbued, someone that is completely soaked with compassionate concern for others, uh, per, taking, and not only that, but has per, taken personal responsibility due to that compassion, due to that love. And their spiritual practice becomes not only a means for them to achieve some sort of a sublime state, some sort of a, 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 a blissful state, but it becomes a means for them to help, to help for, for a means for that person to address the problems that others are facing. That state of mind, when it's 24 hours a day, when it is imbued and that person is studying the perfection of wisdom and when that person is studying wisdom, analyzing wisdom, it becomes the perfection of wisdom. Okay. And it's the perfection of wisdom not in a sense that in that moment it becomes, wisdom becomes perfected, but if that person continues with their great bodhicitta, their great compassion, their great love, immeasurable, and taking res uh, personal responsibility to fulfill the, uh, uh, the aspiration of this great compassion, this great love, then it allows them to perfect wisdom, to bring wisdom to its ultimate perfection, and that is the state of Buddhahood. So actual perfection of wisdom exists only in the mind of fully enlightened Buddhas. Bodhisattvas who are training to become Buddhas are, are more on the path of perfection of wisdom. Not, they don't actually have perfection of wisdom yet. Okay. So Shariputra asked You know, in a, in a sense, you could think about it. Okay, I'm a no, shut up, Shariputra. So, like, sort of giving the sort of the giving the image. Here I am. I'm an arhat, and I'm told that those bodhisattvas are higher than me, even though they have not achieved the level of uh, they, have, they have not achieved the level of freedom that I have. But I'm told that they are better than me, spiritually speaking. And as, as far as I'm concerned, I practice wisdom. Affected it. Now I've achieved nirvana. What else? What else could there be? 
It's like saying, okay, all right, all right. All right, how okay. Okay, how do you guys <laughs> practice wisdom? <laughs> okay. And and he said, and and Shariputra is not only an example of an arhat, but also an example of the man, the male of that time. Okay, he asked, how does a son of the lineage train who wishes to engage in the practice? And listen to how Shariputra answers and corrects him. Shariputra. Okay. Oh, yeah. Uh, is answering. Avarokiteshwara is answering Shariputra. The Bodhisattva, the great Bodhisattva, the exalted Avarokiteshwara. And by the way, you know what Avarokiteshwara means? Oh, it's very beautiful. Uh, the Tibetans translated the, the no, translated everything, translated all the all, all the Sanskrit. The only Sanskrit that they did not translate were the mantras. Okay, so Avarokiteshwara in Tibetan is Chenrezig. Okay. And Avalokiteshwara, Avalo, oh come on, who, who knows Tibetan here? Who knows, you know Sanskrit? A little bit. <laughs> well, Ishwara means Lord. Uh, Avalo means Lord, not Lord, I mean, uh, it's called that. I already said Lord. Uh, the world. Yeah, Alok. And I guess Kitesh. <laughs> I guess that's the part that means uh, to look upon. Huh? Well, I can't quite get the Sanskrit, uh, uh, the Tibetan out of that, but the Tibetan is Chan Re Sik. Sik means to look, to view, to 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 uh, regard. Okay, Re uh, <laughs> means softly. It means like a soft cloth. Okay, Chan. Chen, Chen is anufit uh, for eyes. Okay, so the word actually, the world is not translated in the in the in the in, in the Tibetan for for Avalokiteshvara, but there is a longer <laughs> Tibetan name for for Avalokiteshvara that includes the world. So it means to look upon the world with uh, with soft eyes. So it means to look lovingly upon the world. That's the name of Avalokiteshvara. That's what Avalokiteshvara means. This little sidetrack. Okay. It's in also, and Avalokiteshvara is supposed to represent the embodiment of love, the embodiment of compassion of all enlightened beings. Okay. So it's interesting how the embodiment of all enlightened beings is the one who's, who the Buddha instigated to give a, 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 a talk on wisdom, not the one who's supposed to be the embodiment of wisdom. Okay. Okay. So the Bodhisattva, the great Bodhisattva, Bodhisattva, the great Bodhisattva, the exalted Avalokiteshvara, then declared to Venerable Shariputra, O Shariputra, any son or daughter of the lineage who wishes to engage in the practice of the profound perfection of wisdom should view all things thus. Even those five skandhas, even those five heaps should be regarded as being in essence utterly empty of inherent nature. Now, there are two things in there that sort of like uh, addresses Shariputra, uh, 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 sort of like both 
Shariputra's, uh, not necessarily Shariputra, but the sen. Mm, I don't want to make it sound like a mundane, but in comparison to a Bodhisattva, okay? Only in comparison to a Bodhisattva. Thus, the seeming arrogance of an Arhat, okay? And at the same time, the seeming arrogance of the male of the time at, of, of, of Shariputra, okay? So the first one addresses the social male arrogance. And uh, Avarukateshwara says, any son or daughter, so it's not just men who can achieve uh, the state of Buddhahood, also women can achieve the state of Buddhahood. So anyone of, any practitioner of the Buddha, any disciple of the Buddha, whether they are male or female, okay, and who have in, entered, who have already developed a great sense of compassion, a great sense of love, with that forces them to take personal responsibility for the welfare of all sentient beings. And in, in their endeavor to reach a state to be able to really be a source of refuge for them, this not only should they look at the emptiness of the person, which you guys mostly focus on, <laughs> okay? You guys meaning our hearts. So our hearts don't necessarily have to practice uh, wisdom in regard to phenomena. They only need to practice wisdom in regard to their personality. Okay? And of course, it doesn't mean that uh, our hearts uh, somehow have in their mind that uh, outer phenomena inherently exist. It's just outer phenomena is not, uh, is not a concern of theirs. Okay? They're seeking to reach personal nirvana. And personal nirvana is a personal experience that deals with the, what, the, the personality. And they know that they're going to leave this, 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 the, the rest behind. Okay? So, those who are seeking only personal uh, liberation only need to focus on the emptiness of the personality. What's called the emptiness of, this, of the person. Okay? But, someone who seek to achieve this monumental uh, uh, result called Buddhahood. Not only should this person directly see that the person, the personality, is empty of inherent existence, but that person must also uproot the habitual tendency to see concrete things as having inherent existence, phenomena. Because it's phenomena is staring at you in the face. It's very difficult for you to get rid of the habitual tendency to the habitual conviction to see it as inherently existent. I mean, to see it as not inherently existent, okay? But a bodhisattva must sharpen their wisdom to such an extent that there is not any category of phenomena that they have not applied this direct perception of emptiness to. Okay. When you apply the direct perception of emptiness to, to you, the, your, your own personality, it frees you from the kleshas that forces you to continue to have a miserable existence, to continue to have problems in your life, to 
continue to aspire to things and not be able to get them, to continue to uh, be separated from things that you love, be completely forced to meet and forced to live with things that you that are a, a problem for you, that bothers you, that nag you, that uh, uh, annoy you. Okay, you're forced to exist with them. Okay, and the habits that that uh, perpetuate this kind of existence is uprooted and cut to, uh, at the root if you only need to see how empty the personality is, to see that the personality is empty. Okay. And once you see that, you're able to stop the, the, uh, the habit tendencies that creates suffering existence, then eventually you're, you're going to get out of samsara. You're going to reach personal liberation. You're going to reach a state where from, for, for the rest of your existence, you'll be living in bliss. Okay? And not even the concept of, of suffering will be known to you. Okay? Now that itself is already a monumental achievement. Okay? Now, in addition to, all, all, to achieving this, that's why it says the Bodhisattva, not only the Bodhisattva has to master meditation on the, pers on the person and see that it's empty of inevitable existence, the Bodhisattva must apply the same direct perception to every phenomena and just categorize every phenomena into the five heaps and, and, and you, you essentially have all phenomena. In the 100,000 uh, 100, uh, lines of perfection of wisdom, the Buddha states 108 categories of phenomena. That's why it's a large perfection of wisdom. It's 108 categories. Okay. So, so not only, so this is, this is saying, this is sort of taking into consideration two, two prerequisites. So the person who's about to engage in this practice that is about to be outlined is somebody who is of the Mahayana lineage and somebody who already has an understanding that the, that the person is empty of an empty existence and that the person is about to continue their progress, continue their, their, their practice, now applying this understanding to phenomena. First, beginning with the phenomena, which is just your, the, the part that belongs to you. Okay? Now, what is this person? The person is a sense that we feel is somehow distinct, somehow separate from what we see, from what we directly see. When you think of yourself, what do you directly see? You see you have a body and then you feel you have a mind. And in that mind there are different kinds of things going on that you can sort of categorize as different parts of the mind. And then in the body, you see there are different parts of the body, different functions, but that's all you see. And the sense that me, the person, makes us, uh, give, gives us a, a sense that this me, this person, is something that is distinct, something that is other than the body, something that is other than the mind something that exists completely outside of those things. And that's why sometimes it's called, it feels like it's the possessor of 
the of the mind, the possessor of the body. Okay. And first, you have to see, and it's sort of easy to come to the understanding how this person lacks inherent existence. Because in a way, it's not as concrete as your thoughts, it's not as concrete as your body. Now, how do you establish that the, you, the person, doesn't exist inherently? Okay, it says here, in essence, utterly empty of inherent nature. Now, here is uh, uh, somewhat of a quote from, uh, not quite a, not a direct quote, but it's from a sutra where one of the kings who's a sponsor of the Buddha, a disciple of the Buddha, is, is on, on his deathbed. He's about to die. And I think it's, I think it's Ananda who is visiting him. And then he's, you know, terrified. He's scared. Why is he scared? He's scared because of this uh, innate emotional fear that we all have when death is approaching or when we see death is, is definitely at the door. We fear that we are going to cease to exist, that death mean, will mean the end of us. And we begin to grasp at anything that will so somewhat ensure that we will continue. Okay. This fear triggers a lot of unconscious convictions, a lot of unconscious uh, uh, patterns that will sort of establish how we will continue. Okay? So there is this king in the grip of this fear that is about to cease to exist. And, and Ananda is trying to uh, uh, comfort the king. And the way he comforts the king may appear to contradict what I've just said <laughs> about a possessor of the body, a possessor of the mind. Okay. Ananda tell, tells, but it will give, give, give comfort to that, to that state of mind. Ananda says, King, what you are is not something that can be uh, by either body or mind or any concept. So Ananda is saying, yes, there is, you are their king and then you will continue, but it's not the body that's gonna continue, it's not the mind, and don't let your mind go into speculation thinking about something else because whatever something else you go to is going to be just a concept. And what you truly are is beyond that. And of course, you think, oh, I'm something beyond concept. Already you're trying to grab what could that be? And what is it that you're holding onto? Another concept. <laughs> okay. So the thing you 
thing here is uh, the person exists why does the person exist what makes the person exist and if you understand that the person exists because of if you can answer that question because of then that will give you a a, a right perspective as to what the person is and what's going on is a deep psychological uh, uh, it's a deep psychological therapy that's going on there there is something there is a conviction that we are mostly unaware of that is directing our actions when you have uh, a thought an aspiration to do something and you find yourself incapable of gathering the energy to do it what is it that is holding you back you already have a conviction it's that conviction that's holding you back and why is it that you find yourself uh, easily doing certain things almost you don't have to think about it even if those things intellectually you see that those things are harmful to you so what is it that is giving that habit energy even though you may not want to do it on the surface it's this conviction and this conviction is a, uh, a definite idea about how we exist and the first definite idea about how we exist is that there is something that possesses this body and mind that is our first conviction it's an inherent conviction and when you arrive at the point where you see that the person is empty what you've done is you've undermined this conviction you've uprooted this conviction and you arrive at a place of what is called uh, uh, forbearance at a place of patience that this truth that you have come across you're able to bear it because before then it is this conviction that causes us to have this incredible fear that we're about to cease to exist because here we are definitely we're about to be separated from the body definitely we're about to be separated from the you experience the mind going through this incredible change and maybe maybe there is no possessor of the body and mind and there's nothing else and you, you grab at anything that can tell you differently okay so the fear makes you grab at oh I'm gonna continue I'm just something that possesses the body and mind okay and I don't care 
how this continues as long as don't as long as I don't cease to exist. I don't care how I continue to exist as long as I don't care how I continue to exist as long as I don't cease to exist. And and this can and this sort of fear is really grabbing onto an impossibility. There's no way that you can cease to exist. But this this fear is has is hold, is holding onto it as if it's a conviction. Okay. So in order to ensure the continuity of the person, then we make up the person as being something that possesses the body and mind. So that's why in the, uh, this is a bit uh, out of the, well, in the Bardo, it is said that the, 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 the person is attracted to whatever destiny they're going to. It doesn't matter if the destiny is something that's going to be very painful. The thing is, at least I'll exist. Okay. So they go toward that destination. Okay. Now, when, so when you undergo this incredible psychoanalysis, uh, when you undergo this incredible psychological therapy, where you undermine this conviction that the person is something that possesses the body and the mind. You undermine that. No longer, you're no longer convinced of that. But you know you will not cease to exist. You will continue. Okay? So whatever drive that will make you grab onto anything so you can continue to exist, that drive doesn't have any hold on you anymore. And you can consciously create new habits where your destiny is something that it's not just any destiny, but it's a destiny that you could be actually achieve some sense of satisfaction with. So this the meditation that you do to to achieve at a sense of that there is the possessor of the five of the heaps you build, you you simply look at whenever this is it okay whenever you have a sense of me it's always in reference to okay there's always something there's always something as a, that you act that acts as a reference even though it may be it may feel as though it's something sort of extra. Okay. It's always in reference to. So right now, when you think about who you are, you think about certain, certain characteristics. And those characteristics are always in reference to something. Okay. Now, after intellectually you arrive at oh there is no the person is not some possessor of the five heaps then the habit at grasping 
automatically goes to the five heaps. It goes and grab onto the five heaps as being, oh these, okay, the person doesn't, the person that I thought existed doesn't really exist, but these five heaps really exist. Okay, and this is not something that you may, of course, it's something that you, you're gonna do consciously. It's not like you're consciously gonna say, okay, now I'm gonna grab onto the five heaps as existing, really. It's happened, it's just the habit. The habit is so ingrained, the habit is so strong that it takes more than just this one perception to really eradicate it. Okay. So basically, Avarakiteshwara is going to walk or guide uh, Shadiputra through the five paths, through the path. How do you practice the perfection of wisdom from beginning all the way to achieving Buddhahood? And it's not going to be ev uh, 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 directly evident, but it's going to, uh, well, the meaning will be made, uh, well, we made, we made more and more clear as we know, refer to the, the Dai Lama, the teach, my teacher, and other people. Okay. So, what time is it? 9.07. Okay. We're going to do a little meditation. Did I, did I actually read the second page? <laughs> Halfway. Halfway. saying throw them in the garbage and just say you know, put them aside. Okay. Alright, so first put your body in a state where your body's not gonna bother you. Okay. So have this intense 
intense wish in your mind. This guy said that those problems that I have concerns about, they can be addressed with this conviction. I really, really want to see it. Now, don't have any ideas. Don't bring any ideas about uh, emptiness is this beautiful thing or is this ugly thing. Don't have any of those ideas. So, feel yourself sitting where you are sitting. Really establish that there is you sitting there. sitting here
source of information that tells you you are sitting there.
stories, people who've lost their function of their left part, and they still say, me. So we don't need the left part. And we have people who've lost the other part, and they still say me, so we don't need right or left. saying consciousness because of what comes through the five senses so get rid of the five senses you know there are people who are, don't have eyes they still say me we don't hear they still say me so these are not absolutely necessary so whatever is not necessary remove it
right with okay I'm not body I'm not mind now maybe your mind is now grasping onto this imaginary the possessor of the body and the mind. Stay there with a deep conviction.
me that you really call me. That's the only me that ever existed, that will always exist, that will ever exist. Now, some of you didn't really get the bejesus uh, scared off, but sitting here and then looking at what inf source of information that tell that's telling you there's a me sitting here and you examine that, inf that, inf that information and then you sort of strip it bit by bit so sort of what you're doing you're looking for what is only the sense of me not something that you can label anything else that you can only label only me sense of me that's what you're looking for so if, if you're if uh, you're feeling your arm there's no either discomfort in the arm or nice feeling in the arm and you're uh, feeling the arm and that's what's telling you that's me that's what's giving you the sense of I'm here then this the feeling in the arm is not completely me right it's feeling in the arm that's what it is reference that you're using and just like that little by little go to those actual source just actual information that that is being presented to you and the way you sense the way you had that sense of the me before you sort of like compare those the information and the sense of me and you feel the sense of me wait a minute this, the way I'm feeling the sense of me is not really this information and you just remove the information uh, piece by piece. So you're looking for exactly what can be presented to you that is exactly identical to that sense of me. Okay. But you must do this with conviction. Don't do this with a conviction of I'm not going to find anything, I'm going to do it anyway. Don't do that. It's not going to help you. You're not going to get to that source to that uh, uh, remedy that's going to help you with all your problems. You have to be convinced that this sense of me that you cannot deny exists and you're going to find it. And you have to take it with conviction. Okay? And when you're deconstructing, I guess that's the term, when you're deconstructing the, the information, and then looking for exactly what is the, the sense of me. Okay? The sense of me that I'm feeling is not the same as the sense of, oh, this nice feeling in my arm. The nice feeling in my arm is completely different from the sense of me. Okay? So I don't need this, so let me take that away. And you completely, completely have the conviction that I don't need my arm for me to feel me. And you continue with everything else. Continue, continue. Whatever is being presented to you, to you, whatever the information that you're using to say that's me, you examine it. Is it exactly this feeling that I have of me? If it's not, throw it away. And then look for what else comes up. Okay? And when you've completely exhausted all the information that's coming to you, and you're still left with the sense of me, 
and you haven't found what it is that could exactly be the sense of me, then you have, you, you have come across uh, what? The lack of it, the absence of it. And if this doesn't scare the bejesus out of you, I don't know what will. You have, you have come to a conviction. What you thought was you all along doesn't ex even exist. Not that it exists in a different way, not that it's blue instead of red, it doesn't exist at all. And you have to be able to bear that truth. Okay. But before you get to uh, exhausting all the things which are you know, the body and the mind, the mind is gonna automatically go into the, the possessor. That's the one, that's the first thing that the, our sutra is asking us to do. First find the lack of exist, inherent existence of the possessor. Now, do you feel a possessor? It feels that there is a possessor. That's all it is. Just a feeling that there is a possessor. Not that there is a possessor. And you, then, you, then you have the right to say, my arm, my, my leg, my body, my, my thoughts. Then you have the right to say that. Because you really understand what the possessor is. It's merely you saying the possessor. That's all it is. Apart from that, you cannot find it. But the mind is convinced that you can find something apart from that. That's what you need to directly point to the mind. It is this habit thinking that there is an actual possessor that is causing all our problems. That's why we feel that we have to protect it. That's why we feel that we have to please it. And we're willing to do whatever it takes to make sure that it's pleased, to make sure that it is protected. So when you discover that this is just a phantom, and all this energy that you've, you've invested to protect it, to make sure that it's happy, it's just wasted. And the habit energy that, that, that would make you do that in the future is exhausted. Slowly, of course. Okay. Then you're not compelled to protect it. You're not compelled to, uh, make, it, to make it happy. Because the possessor doesn't exist. Okay. Apart from being merely being called that. And, and that's a bit... Uh, intricate, but we'll get into it. Okay. But first, find that sense of the possessor. We all have it, okay? Unless you're a bodhisattva in high training. Oh, before we go, what is a bodhisattva in high training? Well, let's not even describe the bodhisattva in high training. This is going to be very fast, five minutes. Remember it says, any son, any son or daughter of the lineage, that is before, when, when do you become a son or daughter of the lineage? 
there's a specific event, a specific moment in your life that says you're uh, a son or daughter of the lineage. Vow, renunciation, what else? Refuge. All that. <laughs> no. feeling in your heart and when you see someone you say, oh, look at that person, it's so beautiful. <laughs> well, in addition to that, <laughs> you have achieved a stability in, uh, in a focus called Shine. That's when you are a son or daughter of the lineage. Not just any shine, not just any uh, 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 any stability of mind, but a stability taking the bodhicitta as an object. Okay, that is that concern that you have for others, that compassion is with you 24 hours a day, and you have achieved a level of clarity of mind where you are convinced, definitely, Buddhahood is your is your destiny. There's no doubt whatsoever in your mind. No matter what you experience in life, no matter what setbacks seems to, there aren't even setbacks anymore. Okay, they're just things for you to beat up. <laughs> okay, obstacles to just move away to give you strength. Or if there's an obstacle, lift it up and move it away, and you, you build your muscles. That's what they're there for. Okay, and you're able to hold on to an object of meditation clearly one pointed that's when you become a son or daughter of the lineage I promise that I would not uh, uh, rush through to get to, to get to the end. So we're gonna go through it as nicely as we can, not as slow, but so we can at least be able to go home and say, okay, now I know what to do. Let me start practicing. Okay. But now, what's your first practice? Yeah, find the possessor. establish that it doesn't exist but really find the possessor and if you call me panic my god I don't exist I can't find myself <laughs> I'll tell you to slap yourself <laughs> Then when you 
become uh, accustomed to that, when you uh, uh, accept it, forbear it, then the joy comes. Wow, this feels free. This feels nice. I don't exist. I don't exist. <laughs> It doesn't exist, it doesn't exist. <laughs> okay. Alright. Alright, that's it. Let's uh, close with a dedication. So whatever understanding you are able to gain through this. Express your gratitude for this understanding. And look at the significance of this understanding. How it applies condition, to the very things that you are concerned about, how it will eventually help you deal with it realistically, ultimately. <laughs>